0: Those are the first six verses of Psalm 139, which along with Psalm 138 are the Psalms appointed for today, Saturday, October the 29th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We are continuing our look today at the book of Ecclesiasticus, chapter 35, the first 17 verses. We're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 32 to 48, and then in the book of the Revelation, chapter 13, verses 11 to 18. So we have a lot of verses to cover today. Um, There's just lots to cover in this today. Uh, in the Ecclesiasticus passage, it, it has to do with what it looks like from God's perspective for a righteous man to come before him. See, he who keeps the law makes many offerings. He who heeds the commandments sacrifices a peace offering. So if you if you keep the law, then you offer many offerings because the law requires many offerings. But at the same time, it's it's because you it's not because you're making sin offerings. You're making other kinds of offerings to the Lord. And he who heeds the commandments sacrifices a peace offering. And a peace offering was not meant to establish peace between you and the Lord. It was meant to celebrate the peace that already existed between you and the Lord. So so you you've had a, a sense and a feeling um, of the peace between you and the Lord, and you made the peace offering to celebrate that. And, and when you did, then— that offering was a meal at the end of it. And so you would gather with the priests and whoever else happened to be there who would be there with you, and it celebrated the peace among you as well. And it was one of the ways that the poor received food, because they could participate. Anybody who was there at that time could participate in the consumption of of the parts of the peace offering that were available to everyone there. And so it, it, it did many things. It, it, you celebrated peace, but at the same time, the poor were fed. And so peace was extended beyond your life to the lives of those who were there as well. He who returns a kindness offers fine flour, and he who gives alms offerings a thank, sacrifices a thank offering. To keep from wickedness is pleasing to the Lord, and to forsake unrighteousness is atonement. That's an interesting way to look at it, to say that it atones for sin, um, and, and that was certainly the way that they understood much of the law, was is that in order to—you could provide atonement for something else you had done by keeping a commandment and doing something else. And so forsaking unrighteousness, which is to repent or at least not to participate in it, they say, is atonement here. Do not appear before the Lord empty-handed for all these things are to be done because of the commandment. So these are the offerings that, that a righteous man would make. In all these instances, you would make that kind of a sacrifice. And so that's why it says, don't appear before the Lord empty-handed. The offering of a righteous man anoints the altar, and his pleasing odor arises before the Most High. So he would much prefer those sacrifices of a righteous man as, as to those that are sin offerings, for instance, because it, it says that it anoints the altar. What does that mean? Well, it, the, the anointing is making, it's cleansing the altar itself and preparing it to be a pleasing odor. The sacrifice of a righteous man is acceptable, and the memory of it will not be forgotten. Glorify the Lord generously and do not stint the first fruits of your hands. In other words, don't shortchange those first fruits. The first fruits were, were the things that came to you in, in a harvest season. Uh, the first things that you, that you brought in from the harvest would have been those. And, and there would be a tendency, or at least a temptation, let's say, to stint in those things, to, to hold back some of those first fruits because it had been a while since you had had the fruit of the vine. Everything else would have been dried at this point, and so there would have been temptation to consume some of those things, but no, you were supposed to give those to the Lord. With every gift, show a cheerful face and dedicate your tithe with gladness. In other words, don't begrudge what you're giving. Give the Most High as He has given and as generously as your hand has found, for the Lord is the one who repays and he will repay you sevenfold. So in other words, if you react towards him in such a way that that you recognize that all I have comes from him, and you give with a cheerful and glad heart, then, then it's acceptable to the Lord. Don't do it as a matter of obligation. Do it as a matter of joy and thanksgiving for the recognition that all that you have, including what you're giving to him, is only because he has made it possible for you to receive. Don't offer him a bribe, for he will not accept it. In other words, don't go to the altar and say, well, I'm going to give him this. I'll give you this if you'll do that for me. You know, and so your expectation is that God wants something or needs something from you or that he greatly values something you're offering to him, and therefore he'll do something for you because you gave him something of value. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. If, if, if I weren't here, somebody else would do whatever it is for the kingdom that, that I'm doing. And the proof of that is, well, I won't live forever. I, I'm replaceable, and I know that. Don't offer him a bribe, for he won't accept it. He doesn't need it. And do not trust to an unrighteous sacrifice, for the Lord is the judge, and with him is no partiality. He will not show partiality in the case of a poor man, and he will listen to the prayer of one who is wronged. He he doesn't observe the station of the person in life. No, there's only one question that matters. Are you a righteous person? And and as Christians, we know it's only, are you um, Jesus's? Do you belong to him? Do you love him? Are you covered in the blood of the Lamb? And are you following him? And so it it has nothing to do with your station in life, whether you're poor or great, and he has no special preference for either of those two. He will not ignore the supplication of the fatherless, nor the widow when she pours out her story. In other words, that, that nobody is truly fatherless and nobody is truly a widow because there's one who cares and there's one who will provide. Do not the tears of the widow run down her cheek as she cries out against him who has caused them to fall? He whose service is pleasing to the Lord will be accepted, and his prayer will reach to the clouds. The prayer of the humble pierces the clouds, and he will not be consoled until it reaches the Lord. He will not desist until the Most High visits him and does right, justice for the righteous and executes justice. You know, it's it, judgment, I mean, and it, it's, it's interesting, that last passage there, the um, prayer of the humble pierces the clouds. That's a wonderful thing to hear, that the prayer of the prayer of the humble pierces the clouds. And so, we're encouraged to be humble, but what does it look like? And that's the rest of this. He won't be consoled until it reaches the Lord. He's going to persevere. That humble man is going to persevere, which sounds presumptuous, that he's going to persevere in this until it reaches the Lord. And he won't desist until the Most High visits him. That That's not what we typically think of in with humility, right? But it sounds like the, the widow that Jesus talks about, who goes to the unrighteous judge, who even though he's unrighteous will give her justice because she continues to plead to him. And he compares the father to that. And this piece right here sounds very much like that very uh, parable that Jesus tells of that widow. And and so humility is not something that says, well, I can't approach the throne of God. No, no, no. What it says is, is, is that I have a case to make and I come before the only just and righteous judge in the world, in the entire universe. And I make my plea before him because I believe in justice. <clears throat> it's, it's a powerful statement, and we need to recognize that about humility, that it's not what we would typically tend to try and think that it is. With, when Jesus—remember yesterday, he had, he had talked about uh, the idea that you don't have to worry about anything. If you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these other things will be added unto you. And, and what he's trying to do is not promise you prosperity. What he's, what he's trying to do there is get people to see you don't have to worry about everything, that, you're, that you can trust your Father in the same way that I just explained about that humble man. Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom— Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So he says he's giving you the kingdom. Is that enough? Is that enough, or do you want everything else as well? And then he he says, sell your possessions and give to the nudity, which is exactly what he tells the rich young man when he comes and asks him what he has to do to inherit the kingdom of God. And he ultimately tells him, this is what you have to do. You have to sell all your possessions and give them to the poor, and and he's unwilling to do that. Uh, Yeah, I don't pray much for that reason. I don't want him to tell me that. That's a joke. But but are we prepared to go all in if he asks us to do it? Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So it's a matter of always being prepared and not knowing when the hour is. We have to stay ready to act when he calls us to act. Whatever that might be, we have to be prepared to move when he says move. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. So, as a reversal of roles, he will so the master will so celebrate and so love the ones who were constantly prepared, because it shows that they respect and they love him. In order, it, and that's the reason that they're doing this. I mean, it could be fear, but but that story right there that he'll serve them tells you exactly the opposite. And so Jesus is, is laying out the contours of the kingdom and the way to please God in the same way that Ecclesiasticus passage did. If he comes in the second watcher in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. So no matter how long he's delayed and how late the hour might be, they're staying awake and they're ready for action because they want to let him in. But I know this, but know this that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming he would not have left his house to be broken into you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect now that little piece right there that sentence before he's coming at an hour you don't expect that that's a twist in that story in, in an interesting way but but we're asked and so we've now become the ones who are who are the, the prepared to make sure that that if a thief comes, we can repel that thief. And so we need to always be prepared for that. But he looks out for us as well. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everybody? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he'll set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. So in other words, what your character should be the same is what he's saying. So, so your character should be the same. You, you won't have an opportunity to repent because you will have become so accustomed to a certain way of being that that the master's going to come back at a time you don't expect him to, and he's going to catch you doing exactly what you should not be doing, and there will be hell to pay for that, literally. And the servant who knew his master's will but didn't get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. And here he's talking about those who claim to be in the know, who claim to know things, and if they fail to do the things that they knew, they're responsible for what they know. Is probably the easiest way to say it. You're responsible for what you know, and the punishment is worse when you fail to act in accord with what you know. But the one who didn't know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. So the punishment is more severe for those who know better. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And so if you want to think about it this way, if you want to look at the first couple of chapters of, um, of Romans, for instance, Paul says, you're responsible for what you know. So essentially what he says is the Jews are responsible for a lot more. The Gentiles can't say they don't know anything. They, they can't pretend that they don't because they're the witness of creation, and so you respond according to what you know. And so he's, Jesus is making the same argument here that Paul makes in, in Romans 1 and Romans 2, and continuing, and saying that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we're responsible for that which we know. Now, as a Christian, that doesn't mean you can choose to know nothing. Because if you take the name of Christ, then you have to follow him. And in order to follow him, you have to know him, and you have to know his word. You can't just say, well, I, I live by the Spirit. Well, you know what? It's, it's, it's impossible to do that if the Word of God is available to you. So you can't say, well, I was ignorant of all those things, when, when, when the answer would be, you had a Bible. Nobody kept the Word of God from you. So you need to be hungry for the Word of God. You need to be hungry to know more and more about Him. That shows something of how much you love Him. And it's just as simple as that. Christians who don't, who, who abandon the Word of God, who who don't, who aren't in the Word of God, are, are something that, that is almost understandable, I think, to God, unless they live in a place where it's not possible for them to have the Word of God. But but there's not an excuse for any Christian in America, anybody who takes the name of Christ to say, well, I don't have time to read the Bible. I don't have, you know, I, I don't have any any desire for that. I, I'd rather hear preaching. No. No, because you can be led astray. If you have a Bible and you're not reading that and you're not in the Word of God, then there's something seriously lacking in your discipleship as well as your love for God. If you lack in your prayer life, then there's something wrong with your discipleship. You don't understand the relationship that we have with him. We are to be constant in prayer. Sorry, I'm not fussing at you. If you're listening to the podcast, you obviously care about the Word of God. In the Revelation passage, you get Revelation 13, 11 to 18. Then I saw another beast. So we remember, we have the one beast who was sent and given power and authority by the dragon. And now there's a second beast, which essentially is the priest for the first beast. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. It's counterfeiting God's, um, God's works. It's counterfeiting the, the miracles that, that God works. And by the signs that it allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So there's a counterfeit um, crucifixion and resurrection, essentially. And now you're told to make an image of that. Nowhere. Nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere in the New Testament does it tell us to make an image of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, and that's all we need. And we are his image bearers on the earth if we've been filled with his spirit. So the image of Jesus should be us. It should be the church. And so that here, if if you're told to make an image of anybody on earth, then you can know that's not of God. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. So that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It's a frightening, frightening idea. If you want to read an interesting read, there's, C.S. Lewis wrote three books called that's called commonly referred to as the Space Trilogy. The last of those is called That Hideous Strength. You don't have to have read the first two to read the third. It'll stand on its own, and I can say that because I read it first. So I can say that yeah, you don't have to read the first two in order to understand. There's you won't feel like you've missed anything. You'll see there's backstory, but the backstory is clear enough that you don't need the entire thing in order to read the last one. And what you'll see is so much of this is in there, but he plays it out in such a way that it makes perfect sense to us how this could potentially work and what it could possibly look like. I'd highly recommend it. It's called That Hideous Strength. So. so it might, this, this image can speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man, and his number is 666. And so that would have to do with the gematria of the name of the person. What does each Hebrew letter represent? Each Hebrew number has a numeric value. You add it up, and it comes to 666. So I I don't know. I can't sit here today and tell you I have any earthly idea how to interpret all of this. You know, there there are times when people will say, well, it's this— it's that. People said it was the vaccine. They've said it, you know, about all, all kinds of other things. They're talking, you know, legitimately there's talk about putting chips under the skin that, you, that you'd have to show in order to buy and sell and all this kind of stuff. I've got no earthly idea. I mean, I, I'm hoping that it'll be very, very clear when it is. It, it's, it's so hard to sort all these things out. And so what we have to do as Christians is whenever these things come up, we have to pray. And we have to submit ourselves to the Lord, and we have to talk with other Christians who we trust, who we know are in prayer, who we know are in the Word of God, and and who have the Spirit of God. And we have to trust in one another to have that right discernment. We can be led astray. There have been Christians led astray over and over and over again, you know, in Y2K and all these other things. People have been led astray so many times, it's unbelievable. And and we have to be careful. We have to be wise. We have to be not tenfold hat people. But we have to be wise, and we have to keep our eyes and our ears open, and we can't trust everything we hear from the government or from any other place. It's just something we have to be very careful and very aware. We have to be prepared at all times, just as Jesus says. And if we stay prepared, then we we can rest assured that he will give us, the discernment that we need as Christians, because he loves us so much, he wouldn't allow us to be deceived as Christians and, and taken away from him. He loves us that much, but our way of showing that we love him in return is to remain in him, and we abide in him through prayer and, and uh, the Word of God, the worship of God, and the fellowship with the saints. And if we do those things, then we can rest assured that we won't be deceived.